Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Ezra chapter 3. And the last time we were in Ezra 1 and 2, and the title was Breaking New Grounds with God, and of course we looked at what the children of Israel needed to do, this new work that God was doing, but we also, you know, 2,500 years later, we also can break new ground with God. God is still here, he's still active in our lives, he's still active in his church, and we should ask ourselves sometimes, you know, what am I here for, Lord? Why did you put me here? Why did you save me? What do you want from me? I mean, this is part of a relationship. Today the message is titled, Got Revival? Question mark. And first let me read what revival is, and I know what revival is, but I wanted to just kind of peruse and see, you know, kind of the definitions and uh, what other people thought of it and what they said about it. And probably the best one I came up with is questions.org slash Christianity. And this is what they say about revival. Revival refers to a spiritual reawakening from the state of dormancy or stagnation in the life of a believer. It encompasses the resurfacing of a love for God, an appreciation of God's holiness, a passion for his word and his church, a convicting awareness of personal and corporate sin, a spirit of humility, and a desire for repentance and growth in righteousness. Revival invigorates and sometimes deepens a believer's faith, opening his or her eyes to the truth in a fresh new way. It generally involves the connotation of a fresh start with a clean slate, marking a new belief, beginning of a life lived in obedience to God. Revival, last sentence, very important, it breaks the charm of the world. Right? A lot of Christians walk in both worlds and it's confusing and it's unfulfilling. It breaks the charm and power of the world which blinds the eyes of men and generates both the will and power to live in the world but not be of the world. You see, where God is stirring his people, he also has to prepare his people for the work that he's going to do among them, among the believers and through the believers. Very important. So the children of Israel have their marching orders. This is, this is big. They're coming back from the Persian Empire. They're starting a new work. They're going to rebuild the temple. There's a spiritual reawakening. There's a lot that's happening. Uh, it's, it's actually, the work is a difficult work. You know, the, the Jerusalem is in rubble. It's, it's, it's depressing. But what about us? What about us? And I think we really miss the boat if we don't look at our own lives and where we are in the culture, because this culture, quite frankly, is div divisive. I've never seen culture so divisive before. It's, it's decadent. It's depressing, quite frankly. So what does God have for us? You know, what, is, what are our marching orders? Of course, we're going to look at what happened on, with the children of Israel, but we also have to look at revival for ourselves, for the church that we're a part of locally, for the aggregate church, for the Western church, and see, what is, does God want to do revival? I think he does. You know, I'm going to call in some heavy hitters. I'm going to quote uh, the great preacher C.H. Spurgeon. I'm going to bring up Charles Finney, and we're going to look at this. So we'll check it out. So we're going to look today at revival, or really the three steps to God using his people, starting with revival. And next Sunday, we're going to look at the opposition. And you'll see, and you know in your lives, when you really step it up for the Lord, 
you get this opposition. It's a spiritual oppression where the enemy doesn't want you to do that. So as the next few Sundays, it's going to really be a series in this. I believe it's really going to be a blessing. So chapter 3, verse 1, it says, When the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of the countries, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. And afterward, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not yet been laid. Now, I'm going to make sense of all this because that's what I do offerings and feasts and what does it all mean and what does it mean to us because we don't see that stuff anymore so the first out of the three is spiritual preparation of the people now revival begins always with god's people they're the ones who can understand god they can hear from him they can have a relationship with him actually i'm going to quote a famous pastor at the end who when asked by somebody famous in an interview televised botched the gospel and we're going to look at that so it starts with God's people, spreads to the unsaved world. In this case, the revival came to transform the children of Israel, to do a work through them, and as a result, a consequence, it spilled over to the unsaved world. Now, in a big way, uh, you look at some 500 years later down the line with the coming of the Messiah. So if the children of Israel were taken captive by Babylon, the Persians take over, all right, children of Israel are are incorporated into the Persian world or the Persian Empire, the children of Israel could have easily been dissipated and faded into obscurity. Right? That could have very easily happened. But God said, 70 years, I'm going to regather you, I'm going to bring you back, and I'm going to allow the Persians to let you come back. I'm going to soften the king's heart, and this is what's going on. Now, for us, there may be revival for other reasons. And you look at some of the, the Western revivals that I'm familiar with, and is it possible that when the church starts to lose its saltiness, as Jesus says, it starts to lose its power to, to in a positive way and through love, influence the culture for good, for Christ, that maybe a revival is necessary. Charles Finney, the revival of the 19th century. Do you know who came against him? The biggest group that came against him when he started this great revival in the 19th century. It was religion. Shocking. I actually read about the beginnings of Calvary Chapel in the 60s with Chuck Smith, Pastor Chuck, and he said, we want to get back to the Word of God in prayer. And the denominations came against them. It's so bizarre. You know, and Jesus speaks about this in, in his chastisement to the churches in the book of Revelation. And guess what? When religion is dead, it, it's not attractive to the world. People don't want to come to church. Maybe they even come to church out of obligation or guilt. Right? Uh, Charles, uh, Charles Finney, actually, what he also did, I read a lot about him. He, um, at, at the time, men and women worshipped separately from the old traditions. He said, no, we should, husband and wife should be together. Family should be together. You know, he kind of broke through those barriers. He also was a big abolitionist. 
He was also big into the freeing of the slaves. So this, he, this was a great revival, and it really had such an impact on society. Charles Spurgeon said, now remember, when these guys, when revival happened, we're so, we're so obsessed today with being politically correct. So I'm going to read a quote. It's not politically correct, but take it for the time that it was written. So Charles Spurgeon, in chastising the church, he said, the church sometimes becomes a hospital filled with invalids instead of a camp filled with soldiers. Okay? Where's the church? What's the church doing? Is it having an impact in its community? I know we were talking about the children of Israel, but certainly we can make a one-to-one application today. Verse 1, it says, The people were gathered together as one man. Sometimes nothing brings God's people together like a crisis. Do we like crisis? Does the church enjoy crisis? Of course not. I remember when uh, Superstorm Sandy came through this area, um, many of our people actually went down the shore and tried to help them, and we were partnering with all these different churches Right? When, when our homeless ministry goes down to Trenton, there's other churches there. They don't, they don't compete. One has socks and underwear. Another church has food. Another church has materials. They all join, our church joins with other churches to help these people. So this is, what, this is the way it's supposed to work, by the way. You know what I'm saying? This is the ideal. And I'm here to tell you, based on Scripture, what the ideal is. And it says they came together as one man. So a crisis sometimes can become the catalyst to get the church moving to do what it's called to do. I, I make an analogy. You know, salt is supposed to be spread, Jesus says. Right? You know, in a really bad snowstorm, you've got to spread it on the roads to save lives. Right? We have to be salt spread instead of being stuck in a salt shed. You see what I'm saying? A, a nice DPW has this big uh, shed with tons of salt sitting there. It's no good to anything unless that salt is spread. So we've got to be salt spread instead of being in a salt shed. You know, so anyway, the seventh month, <laughs> the seventh month this happens, and that's the month of Tishri uh, to the Jews, which is really, you know, it, it's really we're kind of at it, Tishri. Um, it's, it's, it's really the start of really our fall season. So a few things happen. They start celebrating feasts again. And God had this device that he would have the people, you know, get together for these feasts. It was a joyous time. But embedded in the feast was remembering God's word and what his precepts were. So we look at three things. The Day of Atonement. This is where the high priest made an atoning sacrifice, not only for himself, but also for the sins of the people. That's important. Atonement, repentance, forgiveness. The only way that sins can be forgiven is by the shed blood. And we know that Jesus came as that Lamb of God who shed his blood so that we could be saved. But the Day of Atonement happened before Jesus came to the earth. So this was a type of Christ to come. To the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, Today we understand it as Rosh Hashanah. It's the Jewish New Year. The pagan Babylonians were kind of doing all kinds of uh, uh, observances based on their false gods. And the Jews had to set themselves apart. Uh, Three, the Feast of Tabernacles. And this was a feast where the Jews celebrated how God provided for them in their wandering in the wilderness, which really was a miracle, if you think about it. They also offered burnt offerings and various sacrifices. Now there was an altar that was put back on its base, and the high priest started offering sacrifices. Um, The morning and the evening oblation, or the the sacrifice, was being done. Uh, Joshua the high priest made sure that he set everything up. Even before the temple was built, the altar was very important. Because what happened at the altar? Well, the altar represented, the reason it was there is because of sin. 
Okay? And I think about Christ when I go through this. Sin had to be dealt with. Uh, sacrifice had to take place in order for their... Well, repentance would happen and that would bring people to the altar. They would realize that they're weak, that they're sinful, that they've let God down. So there's a repentance aspect. I want to change. So then the next step is the sacrifice at the altar. And then, of course, God's forgiveness. And what does this all mean to us? Jesus embodied this symbolism. So if you look at Christ, he's the only one who fulfilled these two roles. Two roles. The high priest... Look at the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. He was the high priest, meaning Jesus officiated this setup where we could be forgiven for our sins. So he was the high priest. And then he morphed into, he moved into the sacrificial role. He was also the sacrifice. He was the lamb. He gave himself up. Jesus says, nobody takes my life. He was God. He goes, I give it up willingly, and I do it out of love. So Jesus is the sacrifice as the lamb gave himself up on that cross to die for our sins. Very, very powerful. Let's go back and forth between the children of Israel and and us. Children of Israel wanted to break out of their dismal, subservient, demoralized existence to sin and self and now trust God. Now, I know this is tough because we we leave this building, we watch TV, we go on social media, and basically everyone's telling us how we have to love ourselves more, how we have to continue to focus on ourselves. And you know what? It just breeds more narcissism and more problems in relationships. However, the Bible is saying that we can become prisoners to our own self. We look in the mirror, it's all we see. It's all about me, it's all about what I want. And we just, we get into our own little bubbles. And we're all bumping around in each other, bumping into the next person's bubble. And they get offended because they had their personal space, and now you're moving into their space. And they wanted to do this, and you're affecting them. And you're, you know, family, relationships, whatever. Self is a problem. Children of Israel wanted to get right with God, and that had to do with going out of themselves to think about God and also to be other-centered. Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't say in three, well, let's put three first, or if there is no three, just really love yourself. He didn't say that. He said, deny yourself. Deny yourself. Well, today we can also break through our subservient, demoralized, and dismal existence due to sin and self by trusting Christ and then walking with him. Jesus, for us, is the fulfillment of their offerings, their burnt offerings, their sacrifices. Right? They were a type. They were a picture of the Christ to come. When Christ came, he fulfilled those. That's why there's, it's not done anymore. He was the final priest. No need for a priesthood anymore. He was the final sacrifice. No need for sacrifice anymore. Repentance, a change of heart, a desire to change, to get closer to God, is a precursor or an integral part of revival. Kind of hard to say, God, fill me, use me. I want to be other-centered. When you're going to him being self-centered and not wanting to change, they're, they're incongruous. They don't, they don't work together. Second Chronicles 7.14, and I've heard this quote before uh, by a lot of preachers. Now, there was a contextual issue. Um, Solomon was building, ironically, the first temple. And he wanted that temple dedicated. He wanted to be God, God to be a part of that temple. He wanted God's presence to reside in that temple. And God comes to him and and shares with King Solomon before this all happens, or as it's happening. And he says this, quote, 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves. He doesn't say, if the world will get right first, then we can spring into action, Christians. No, no, no. Judgment starts with the house of God, the Bible says. 
He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. And what did I say? Once it starts with the, with the house of God, it spills over to the surrounding communities of the unbelievers. They get a blessing okay, when the church is, is getting right. Okay, he's speaking about the children of Israel, but he's also speaking to us. The application for us today is repentance is a precursor to being used by God. Now, a lot of churches today, especially the big, fancy, famous ones, they don't want to preach sin, blood, repentance, the cross, hell, judgment, because they'll lose followers. You know, you got to maintain the machine. you got to keep it going. And you find, and it's, it's almost like um, reinforcement in behaviorism, positive reinforcement. You tell the people what they want to hear, they give more, they show up more, they bring, you know, that's not what it's all about. The Bible tells us wonderful things. Philippians, we talked about joy. It also tells us hard things about ourselves too, and we need both to grow. Now, remember, the temple isn't built yet, but Joshua, the high priest, is a true leader. He doesn't sit around going, this place is a mess. There's stones all over the place. There's no way we can do this. We can't lift those stones. The, 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 the altar has been thrown on its side. Look, the legs are broken on it. You know what a Joshua does as a real leader instead of complaining about the circumstances? Because we can get into that. We don't like the circumstances, we start complaining. What Joshua did was he made things happen. Now, he's thinking to himself, what can I work with? Well, there's the base. If I can find the altar, if I could put it together, if I can, if I can do the sacrifices, you know what? God is going to respond. He's going to respond to our repentance. That's what a real leader does. A real leader doesn't sit around and complain. They're proactive. They make things happen. So the question today is, does everything have to be perfectly choreographed for there to be some type of revival? Does it have to be a big show? The answer is no. The answer is no. I know even for my staff, I want professionalism, but I don't look for perfection. Well, this didn't go right in the, in the live nativity, or this didn't go right in the Thanksgiving outreach. I don't throw a tantrum and stomp my feet. Was the Lord in it? Did people get blessed? That's all I care about. You know what I'm saying? Was the Lord in it? Was the Holy Spirit a part of it? I'm happy. We have to... So part of the message is what is revival and what is, not, what is revival not? Revival is not perfection. The Holy Spirit's not a showman. He uses flawed people, me and you, to accomplish his will. And when the world sees it, they're like, wow, those are flawed people. That's amazing what happened over there. I think I want to investigate and find out more. People know what a show is and what a show isn't. Right? Are we flexible? Can we be flexible? Verse 3, it says, Though fear had come upon them because the people of the surrounding nations. The children of Israel, God's people were intimidated. Brothers and sisters, do we have our moments? of fear, of being frightened, of feeling intimidated, of feeling um, a low self-worth? Of course we do. Well, the children of Israel were surrounded by enemies, and they were intimidated. It says it right here. But you know what they did? They didn't quit. They kept going. They trusted the Lord. Is God going to make every situation perfect when he uses us? The answer is no. The answer is no. Oftentimes we'll see the opposition. Sometimes it'll be a test to see if we'll keep going and we'll trust him. Psalm 23, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Does that sound like fun? Who can say Ajita? You know what I'm saying? I mean, <laughs> you're eating, you want to digest nicely, you want to chew your food and all that stuff, and you're surrounded by enemies. 
we, 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 people memorize that, that psalm and, and they don't fully understand it. The situations aren't always going to be perfect. However, God was faithful. Now, if you're not saved, the enemy will probably, for the most part, leave you alone. You may be very successful because you don't know the truth. You're not saved. Your sins have been paid for because you haven't trusted. Well, they have been, but you haven't trusted in the Lord yet. So sometimes the demonic world will leave you alone. Once you get saved, don't think that Christianity is going to be a cakewalk because now you're a target. What? You were in my camp? You went with God? Not really happy about that. If you're a cultural Christian, at best, you also may be left alone because you may be ineffective for the kingdom and God likes it like that. He loves cultural Christianity, Satan. So he'll probably leave you alone. You may be very successful in the world. Once you decide, you know what? I want to change. I want to do something. I want to, I want to seek the Lord. Expect problems. Expect problems. It's a very odd situation, but that's it's the fact. Now, just a quick historical note, because I like to throw in history. I enjoy history. Synagogue. So, Pastor Joe, and people get confused with the temple, the synagogue... I have Jewish friends, they say they're going to temple. But you're saying that the temple was destroyed. The temple's in Jerusalem. I'm confused. Synagogue was a place where people gathered together. Uh, it was after, after the first temple was destroyed. Um, some of the Jews had modest synagogues in Babylon. Their house was a synagogue. They had meeting places. They weren't too flashy because they didn't want to attract negative attention. They didn't want to evoke feelings of anti-Semitism. So these little places, little structures, little maybe buildings, maybe a, a home or a whatever, an outbuilding doubled as a synagogue. When the people went back to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple, they were still around. They became even more prominent when the second temple was destroyed in AD 66 through AD 70 with the Jewish-Roman wars. Synagogues became important again because now the temple's destroyed. You can't go to the courts, you can't worship there, you can't make the pilgrimage, the place is a mess again. So synagogues remained. And synagogues will, of course, for the last 2,000 years, since there hasn't been a temple in Jerusalem, um, some are very elaborate and grandiose. Is it, is, are they the temple? No, they're not. They call it temple. But the temple, actually, according to Revelation, the temple will rebuild. There'll be a third temple built. Um, and we'll see that's going to be a very trying time for the world. Uh, but you know, God uses prophecy to give us indicators of what we're going to see in the future. Hopefully we won't see that. Hopefully the Lord removes us from them, I, from here, the earth. Before that happens, I really believe that. But one key difference is on the temple grounds, on the temple mount, sacrifices were offered. Leviticus 17 says that there's no atoning for sins unless sh uh, blood is shed. So you can't, nobody does sacrifices in, in, local, in the local synagogues. That sacrifice for sins only happens now through Christ. He already shed his blood once and for all, the Bible says. So we have to put all things in a perspective. Verse 7, continuing, they also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So the second out of three is physically preparing the materials. This reminds me, and I went back to the, in the scripture, to 1 Kings 5 and 1 Kings 6. If you remember, King Solomon was the, you know, the 
builder of the first temple. God had him do that. Again, historical note. Solomon, as the king of Israel, had an unlimited budget. Okay? Jews are in Babylon. They're in the Persian uh, Empire. They're sent back. Uh, king Cyrus is very generous. But they, also, they didn't have an unlimited budget. As a matter of fact, the prophet Haggai in chapter 2 even says that the second temple was not as glorious as the first one. Now we know that Herod came later, many years later, um, several hundred years later, and he did this beautiful, elaborate refurbishing project on the temple. He made it more glorious. And then, of course, the Romans destroyed it in roughly A.D. 70. So just a little historical note there. Verse 8. Now in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, the son of Josedak, and the rest of their brethren and priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons, and the sons of Judah arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God. The sons of Henadab with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, foundations laid now, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So the third out of the three is the foundation gets laid. Okay? Foundations are very important. We know Jesus is understood as the chief cornerstone. Uh, in that language, he was the, the capstone. He was the most important stone of the foundation when they put an edifice together, okay? So foundations are very important. I actually, I used to build, um, when I was a younger man, <laughs> I used to build houses and make some extra money in between college and stuff, and uh, it was amazing. You know, you, you dig the, the footing, you pour the concrete, you start laying the block, you, you know, plumb and square, and, and when you start to see this thing start to build, and then they're finally putting the siding on and the shingles, you say, wow, it's, I feel like I did something. It's a feeling of accomplishment. So they laid the foundation for the temple. Very important. A lot of work goes into the foundation. And if you actually build a solid foundation with all the proper measurements, the rest of the building goes up a lot easier. If you've got a wiggly foundation, it's out of whack. You, you have major problems when you start to put the timber on and all those other things. Foundation. We can look at this spiritually, brothers and sisters. What's our foundation? What defines me in life? Is my foundation Jesus Christ? No, is it really Jesus Christ? Or am I kind of all over the place? Foundation. Without that foundation as of Christ, we can call ourselves believers, we can come to church, but we can become just kind of all over the place. Christ needs to be our foundation. So this must have been very exciting to them because it was a spiritual component. Now, there was a delay in the rest of the building. We're going to cover that in the next chapter. It was a delay. It was sad. But then they come back and they're able to build on that foundation. It's still there and the temple gets completely built. And they're praising God after completing it. Was the temple finished? No. It was just a foundation. Was it much to look at? No. 
nothing ornate, nothing exciting. It's a foundation. But they're praising God. A big part of my prayer life is thanking God. I just thank Him. I'm still here. Some of the stuff I did when I was a teen and in my 20s, I, didn't, I can't believe I made it this far. You know what I'm saying? Thank you, Lord. I have a lot to be thankful for. That's just me personally. But I really believe that everyone, if we really think about our lives, the fact that you're here, you're breathing right now, means a lot. I mean, we, we look on the news, we see these freak accidents, we look at just the craziness in our society and overseas. And uh, I think we all have something that we can praise God about. Every milestone in our life. We don't have to wait until the temple is built. We don't have to wait until the, the last piece is put on. We can thank God for those milestones in our life. Verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses who were old men who had seen the first temple wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud with, for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard afar off. So something unusual is happening. There's this sound. <laughs> if you weren't right there and you didn't see the two groups making different noises from far away, you might say, wow, there's some excitement there, but it sounds like laughter. It sounds like crying. At this, What's going on? <laughs> so let's check this out. And, and there were two things going on. See, the older generation had seen the first temple. They had seen its glory. They also saw the Babylonians at the gates break through, come in with their flaming arrows, with their sledgehammers, with their horses and chariots, and just level the place, stealing all the gold, um, you know, killing the people, slaughtering the soldiers, taking away its captives. You know, I, the, the Bible just tells us so much. This was traumatic to the older men. They were, they were happy, but it also brought back memories of what they had seen. They watched the place burn. Now they're laying the new foundation. The young only knew growing up in Babylon. To them, it was exciting. Wow, this is, wow. Like, look, archaeology. Oh, look, look at this. Look what I found under this pile of stones. So they only knew, we're going to build the temple. So they were excited. They were shouting for joy. Don't discount the older generation. I think it's so important. There are people alive today in our own country that have seen the liberation of the concentration camps. They've seen the effects of the a Great Depression. They've seen um, the horrors of being overseas of communism and, and socialism take heavy root after World War II. They were in the Korean War. They saw the suffering of the people. And... You know, listen, I was a millennial. I'm, no, I guess I wasn't a millennial. can't say that. I was a young person. There was a really great article that talked about how millennials need to really understand history. You know, this, this excitement for socialism and some for communism has only brought death and suffering to millions of people. We need to know our history. History is extremely important. But going back to this, even in the church... There are differences of experiences between young and old. But we can't let that become the wall of division. Both generations have something to offer. The young have energy and vision, and that's needed in the church. And the older have experience, wisdom, and patience. 
You know, we need to be careful not to let that separate us, but to allow us to work together. And I like when I look out, I see the combination of older and younger. It's so important for a church. You know, some churches have the attitude, we just want young people here. That's foolish. And others, it's, it's more of a, um, and again, I just, it's a criticizing on both sides. They're not looking for new members. It's more of a social club for older people. You know, we have to have that mix. I can imagine a conversation, and I like to do this, between a younger person in Jerusalem and an older person, where the young person says, hey, what are you weeping about? And the older person responds, well, let me tell you about the horrors I remember. Let me tell you why we got here and this place is such a mess. Young man, don't make the same mistakes that my generation made. And it's important for the younger generation to listen to the older generation and take it to heart. Because I'm seeing things that, that I, I did dumb things when I was young. And thank God there were some that helped me to correct my ways. And then I try to share it with younger, and some of them accept it, and some of them blow me off. You know, the wise man, the Bible says, is somebody who receives information, receives correction. It be, makes them wiser. It's the foolish one who says, no, nah, I got it. Don't tell me anything. Right? The older, I could imagine saying to the younger, now check this out, well, what are you so happy about? And the young saying, God is doing a great work and we're going to be a part of it. Aren't you excited? You see the difference? You see how the two of them can work together? You know, I, I kind of feel like I'm at the age where I can understand both generations. That's starting to fade, by the way, but I'm still holding on. I'm still in my 49, but still in the 40s. It's just a number. <laughs> you know, in some ways I kid around and say, I'm old school. And that's, a, that's an old school definition. I'm old school. I get the respect. I get the, the older generation. I understand that. But I also am desirous to be flexible and to be a new wineskin. I also understand that, that the plight of the younger folks and especially what they're going through. This isn't an easy time to be in your 20s or 30s. This isn't an easy time to try to build something. You know, economic indicators and, and just a lot of uh, things that are kind of pushing millennials to the point where it's, it's stressful. So I can understand both. And I try to be the bridge between those both generations. I try to do that. Let me read to you what Charles Spurgeon said about... A lot of you like famous preacher Charles Spurgeon. Um, in his notes, what is revival? He says this, while a true revival in its essence belongs only to God's people, it always brings with it a blessing for the other sheep who are not yet of the fold. Jesus spoke about that. They're not saved. And they don't realize it, but they're going to get saved at some point because they're going to be positively influenced. I love that. This is so profound. He says, if you drop a stone into a lake, the ring widens continually until the farthest corner of the lake feels the influence. That's powerful. Let the Lord revive a believer and very soon his family, his friends, his neighbors receive a share of the benefit. For when a Christian is revived, he prays more fervently for sinners. Longing, loving prayers for sinners, and I would say for the lost. He's, it's, it's one of the marks of a revival in the renewed heart. Even Christians, we can, we can succumb to selfishness. Here, the revived Christian is not thinking of him or herself all the time, thinking about others. Since the blessing is asked for sinners, the blessing comes from him who hears the prayers 
of the people, and thus the world gains by revival. Soon the revived Christian speaks concerning Jesus and the gospel. He sows good seed, and God's good seed is never lost. For he has said, it shall not return unto me void. Right? Isaiah 55. The good seed is sown in the furrows, and in some sinners' hearts, God prepares the soil so that the seed springs up in a glorious harvest. Thus, by the zealous conversation of believers, another door of mercy opens to men and women. Powerful. In the last few minutes as we close, so some things I'm going to say, um, I don't know, may not be taken great, but it's got to be said. To some in denominations or some churches, they don't understand, they don't, they were never taught revival. They've never studied revival. They don't know what revival is. To others, they're always speaking like revival's pretty much happening every day where it becomes kind of worn out. Um, let's compare what she said to somebody who had the opportunity to reach millions of people and blew it when it came to the gospel because he's too busy, honestly, taking selfies with celebrities. Oh, you know, you, you two and Justin Bieber and such. The pastor and... This is amazing because when I prepare a message, I find these things by accident. But I would say that God had a purpose. There was a, an interview which millions of people watched recently, Oprah Winfrey and Pastor Carl Lentz, the pastor of Hillsong Church. Now you see a lot of hype in that place, and you would think that revival was happening every day. But don't be deceived. Can it be true if the person either does not want to share the gospel, waters it down, or doesn't know the gospel? Let me just give you a quick excerpt. Oprah asked Carl Lentz, do you believe that only Christians can be in a relationship with God? His reply, no. I believe that when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the way I read that, first of all, it's very simple. There's no reading into it. Second of all, he didn't say, the rest of the verse where Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. He said, Jesus says that he is the road marker. He is the map. So I think that God loves people so much that whether they accept or reject him, he's still gracious. He's still moving. He's still giving you massive red blinking light. So Jesus now becomes a road marker instead of our sacrifice for sin. He's, he's, a, he's a blinking light on the corner somewhere. He says, for chances to take a right turn when maybe you'd take a left, but I believe God loves people and that's what this whole gospel is based on love. The love happened because we blew it, because we sinned, because we were destined to hell, we were destined to judgment. That's why God came and loved us and did something that was so painful to him and his son so that he could redeem us back. And here's the thing. I, I read body language. When he was saying that, I saw Oprah sit back and she had like the smile of the Cheshire cat, this big smile on her face because Oprah, I got nothing against her, but she's a pluralist. She's not a Christian by her own admission. She puts on these weak pastors so that, she, that she can dominate and manipulate and get them to say things that she wants to hear, whether it's Carl Lentz or Rob Bell or even Joel Osteen. When it comes to the gospel, she doesn't bring on a, a John MacArthur or a Calvary Chapel pastor or a, you know, any of these guys that are going to give her the truth, the straight truth of the gospel. Now, before you think what I'm saying is mean, you know what's really mean and heartless? Deceiving millions of people, and then when they die, they realize they were on a false foundation. That's mean. I'd rather say the hard things now and have people hate me 
but some of them become believers and get into the kingdom. And that's the fruit of our labors. You see what I'm saying? Revelation 3, 1 through 3, and this is very important. Jesus said to the church of Sardis, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Sometimes we look at the big and the exciting and the lights and the famous and the celebrities and we think that's a happening church. He said, Sardis, you, you think that you're alive, but you're dead. This is, that's pretty powerful for our Savior to say that to a church in the New Testament. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain because they're ready to die. You're almost completely dead. And you think that you got it going on. He says, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Repent, therefore, or remember, therefore, you, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. This is what the Bible does. Sometimes it shocks us into it shocks us out of our complacency. And the children of Israel in the 6th century B.C. had a mandate. But brothers and sisters, we have one today. How do you not read the news? I mean, we all know somebody. My, my brother last year lost his life to an overdose. We're all affected by people who have cancer, by people who are dying, by people who are in self-destructive lifestyles. We have a mandate too. The question is, are we willing to seek God in prayer and say, Lord, use me. What can I do in my own little bubble, in my own little sphere of influence? That's the important thing. And let's get out of the mindset that we're, we're useless. you told all your life that you're not going to amount to anything. That's people. That's not God. God can do something amazing. He did it through the people in the Scripture. And a lot of them were flawed. They were all flawed. This is exciting to me. So as we leave these, these next few, the last sermon, this sermon, the next sermon... This, all, this is about us, brothers and sisters. This is why it's called the living word. It doesn't die in a certain time period. Some of you are in college. Some of you are in the business world. Some of you are ministering in nursing homes. People need to hear the truth of the gospel. This world is a mess. And quite frankly, regardless of who gets in in November, it's going to become even messier. <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? Do you hear what I'm saying? So, so after the altar call, I just want to give everyone an opportunity for us all to stand and pray and to be part of revival, to be part of personal ministry, to be part of the work that God is doing, that we don't watch the bus go by, that we're part of what He's doing, that we're on it, that we're not standing on the platform saying, you know, I really should have taken that step of faith, but now I'm just sitting here looking at train tracks. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.